Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Today we welcome David Kessler. Now David is the world's foremost expert on healing and loss. And he has written many books on the subject, one I know that you know, on grief and grieving. You know the five stages of grief? He was one of the co-creators of that. It's considered the Bible on the subject, and he co-wrote it with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. He now has a new book that we're going to talk about today called Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief. And he extends the well-known five stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, that you all know and adds meaning to it because his own journey with grief started not only when he was a kid, when he witnessed mass shootings, but more recently, his life has been turned upside down by the sudden death of his 21-year-old son. So I'm really excited to bring to you the generous heart and wisdom of David Kessler. David Kessler, it is an honor to get to be in dialogue with you and to just to feel and hear how much you've been of service for so many years around the topic of grief in really profound ways. You know, you've worked alongside one of my heroes, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. How did you start really becoming a thanatologist, somebody who studies death? Well, I always say that it's not a um, profession. Sometimes you choose, sometimes it chooses you. Okay. And uh, when I was 13 years old, I had a mother who was dying in a hospital. And it was a very sterile ICU environment. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, the hotel across the street where we were um, a fire turned out to be a mass shooting, and it was one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. So at an early age, I had a mother who died and a mass shooting, so it sort of engaged me in the grief world very early on. So when you went on to graduate school, and, and well, undergrad and grad, did you know that this is where you were already heading? I mean, is this... Was this not where? at all, not at all. I kind of, um, in some ways, I resisted it, um, but it turned out, you know, I kept coming back to it, and it kept being the place where I connected with people, mm. so um, it is what I ended up doing. Finally, I realized, you know, you should do what you're drawn to and what you're good at. Yeah, yeah. So... You have worked hand in hand with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. What was it like being in a co-conspirator with her and, and being a part of the five stages and, 
Yeah. Tell me a little bit about well, how the two she of was you an came amazing, together. She was an amazing, organic, rule-breaking woman. Um, and as you mentioned, she identified the stages of dying, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And other people began to sort of adapt and misadapt them for grief. And so her and I had written a book called Life Lessons. So we uh, decided to follow up and formally adapt her stages for grief. And uh, we did that in our book on grief and grieving. And I always remind people, literally on page one, it says, they're not a map for grief. They don't have to go in that order. Your grief is very unique. And, uh, you know, it's interesting in our modern world how people have turned them sort of into five easy steps for grief. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's dealt with grief and loss knows it's not five easy steps. And Elizabeth would sort of be appalled by how sort of rigid they've become because that was certainly never our intention. And I find it interesting sometimes on social media, on my Facebook or Instagram, someone will post something like, you and Elizabeth are just trying to neaten up our grief and make us follow rules. And that is the furthest who she is um, and furthest who I am also. But um, I know we have an age that we want to simplify everything. Yeah. I love that you're bringing that awareness and context and in a way freeing us all. Have you seen that one? There is one beautiful post though that models what you're saying. It takes her state, your, your, the stages of grief that the two of you created. And rather than it going from one to another, it's a squiggly line going like a big thing. You go through all of them all over the place in a really weird way. And, and it's, it's, I think you would really enjoy it. Oh, I don't know if I've seen that. So if you see it again, send it to me. I'd love I, to see it. I will do that. I will do that. You know, in your new book, which I've, I've had the chance to look through, um, and I'm, I am going to be really transparent. I just lost my mother in August. So I'm having my own experience with grief. Um, you felt the need to update the five stages and talk about meaning. And, and why, why was that important to add that, that last piece? Why was that missing? Well, it connects with what we said about the stages being misinterpreted. One of the other big misinterpretations was that acceptance took on a finality that Elizabeth and I never intended. Mm -hmm. You know, when people ask, how long will I grieve or how long will my friend grieve? I always say the question really is, you know, how long is a person going to be dead? Because if they're going to be dead a long time, you're going to grieve a long time. Yeah. But you can grieve eventually with more love than pain. Mm. So I thought about there's more than acceptance. And I was so curious about meaning and had written a good bit about it. Then a few years ago, my own son, David, who my younger son, 21 years old, died accidentally and I just obviously it was so brutal and I kept looking and I thought I just I need more than acceptance I just don't want to let acceptance be all there is mm -hmm. so I thought I want to learn about meaning even more mm -hmm. and so I interviewed people whose spouses had died and parents had died and children had died and siblings had died all who found amazing meaning mm -hmm. and then i did the brain research on how our brain works in grief 
and I wanted to put that together and how our brain also makes up negative stories about self-blame. Hmm. So that all became uh, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief, which is the new book. And I was just so honored that the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross family and foundation gave me permission to actually add a sixth stage to her iconic stages. Yeah, wow. So they really sanctioned this to really transform those stages. It's so beautiful, David. What an honor. I, I was honored by them. Thank you. I also hear the motivation. I'm going to say something tender to you, that there's a way in which this honors your, your son as well. Well, it is my finding meaning that, you know, part of what we find in meaning, when people first hear this concept of meaning, they go, there's no meaning in the death. Mm. No, there isn't. But there is meaning in the life we had with them. Mm. And there is meaning in our life after their death. And so for me, this book is a way that I find meaning in honoring his life in a way he gets to be a helper in death. He didn't get to be in life that he wanted. Mm. And, uh, you know, so many people also think, oh, meaning, does that mean I'm going to have to start a charity or a foundation? And I tell people that meaning occurs in moments mm. that, you know, to identify those meaningful moments that we had with our loved ones, that honor our loved ones, that we can do to bring their life forward as we go forward in our life. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I think that's so clarifying what you're saying, that meaning is not this grandiose sort of display. It's It can be really simple, but I am almost hearing, you know, I've certainly met people, and I've certainly been one of these people who has gotten stuck in my grief. And I also imagine meaning helps some of that energy too. But tell us more about what happens when we get a little stuck there. Sure, and I think we've all either been there or know someone. And grief is ever-changing. We have a bad day, a worse day, a better month, a worse month. But like you mentioned, we've met people or been there where it doesn't feel like it's flowing anymore and we're in the same place. And in some ways, when we become stuck, we become, the loss becomes our focus and we become dedicated to it. And meaning is a way that we can get moving again. And meaning certainly doesn't mean we're taking away the pain. I can't ever take away the pain of my son dying or your mother dying, but meaning can become a cushion mm -hmm. that we can lean on. So meaning begins to help us and also help bring us out of that stuckness. Yeah, I'm really feeling that as you say that. I think it's really cool the way you just said we can become dedicated to the grief. What is that? Can you expand on that? Because that's really profound what you just said there. What does that mean? Dedicated to the grief. Well, that becomes when our life becomes not about life, but it becomes about the loss we suffered. And we see this all the time that, you know, we have a choice. And I want people to know we have a choice to not be a victim of it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, after my own son died, I remember, and I write about this, a woman, Diane Gray, who's a good friend of mine and was head of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Foundation. And she also had a child who died, too. She called me up and she said, David, I know you're drowning and you're going to be drowning for a while. But she said, at some point, 
you will hit bottom and you will have a decision to make. And the decision is, do you stay there or you begin to swim again? Mm-hmm. And that resonated as true. And I find that swimming again is the meaning we can find. And can we be present in our own life that honors their death be versus being stuck in the loss around their death? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I can easily become someone who talks nothing except about my son's death. But my son was actually more than his death. And while I can talk about his death, I also want the focus to be his life. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. It really touches me. You know, in your book, you make this distinction that sort of, sort of is a follow on to what we're talking about here between pain versus suffering, which I imagine relates to this being dedicated to grief. What is the distinction? I think it's powerful to, for us to sort of sit with that a little bit that you make between pain versus suffering when we're in a state of grief. Sure. And one of the things I want to mention for anyone who's listening who may have other types of grief, I believe everything is the death of something. Mm. I, a breakup is the death of that relationship. A divorce is the death of the marriage. A job loss is the death of that work environment. So we feel pain after all these events. Yeah. And when a loved one dies or another loss occurs, we have the pain. And I, like I said, I can't take your pain away, nor would I want to. Your pain is part of the love. Mm. But suffering is what our crazy mind does. Mm. Our mind can't conceive of loss or death. So our mind often blames us, blames other people, uh, makes a lot of noise, telling us we're always going to be in this pain you would think our mind and our brain would be so compassionate to us after (laughs) we've had a death, but it's actually the opposite. Yeah. And so for me, suffering is that noise, the commenting our mind makes in addition to the pain. So I can't take away anyone's pain, but I can help them with their suffering. Oh, I think that is so helpful. So what I'm hearing you say is that, we're going to have to really tend our mind or be prepared to after. And that's what I try to do. Right. And I try to sort of give people tips and techniques and to understand the brain science of the mind and why our mind does that so that we don't blame ourselves for blaming ourselves. You know, and speaking of, because I think what you're doing is something really generous with this book. And I told you, I think your website is so generous. Um, you're doing something for folks that buy a copy of this book, Finding Meaning. You want to say a little bit about how you're supporting people that are suffering and in pain? Well, I know that meaning and dealing with grief and loss is so hard to do. And how do we deal with the pain? So when I did this book, I thought I also want a companion class. So I have a companion class that anyone who gets the book, whether it's on Kindle or E or audio or however form they get the book and wherever they get the book from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, their indie bookstore, there's a free seven module companion class that goes with it. 
and people can get the information for that at sixstage.com, S-I-X-T-H stage.com, or they can go to grief.com and they'll find it there. I think that's such a supportive, generous offering. So thank you for, for sharing that with us here, for sure. Of course. Um, you know, you, you said something about grief and our mind and so much of what we do at sidewalk talk is we're in relationship with others and sometimes not always but sometimes some of the conversations that we have when people sit down with us are conversations about their grief and i'm curious to hear how are the relationships that we're in part of our journey of healing of recovery and how can we be good stewards when we're connecting with someone in grief well a few things i want to say about that one of the things that i think harms us is that we have this idea when we die all our relationships are going to be complete and tidy and we've said <laughs> everything we need to say and we're going to like just wrap everything up and the truth is we die in the middle of the argument we die in the middle of the discussion. And so that reality happens and it catches us by surprise, but that's normal. And I always say, if there's something you need to say from your heart, if you say it in your heart, they'll still hear it in theirs. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of connection after death, connecting with others is so healing. I have like online groups at grief.com and they have, they're a nominal fee, but I never turn anyone away for lack of funds. And whether it's connecting online, connecting in a group, talking to others who have grieved, there's something about the social connection is so healing. Are there things that when we're supporting someone that we should or shouldn't say? Yeah, you know, one of the things is part of our work is to witness people's grief, to just be with them. Yeah. You know, we're fixers these days. We want to <laughs> fix you. We want to show you the silver lining. We want to tell you, isn't it good that your loved one died quick or the way they did, or isn't it a blessing? And I talk in the book about one of the rules of meaning is that your meaning is not a test or a blessing or a gift or a lesson. You know, your, your loss is loss. It's not a blessing that they died. It's not a gift the way they died. So sometimes our work is to just see them in their pain and be with them and not try to point out that silver lining, but just say, I don't know what this is like for you, but I'm here with you. Mm -hmm. And if you want to talk about it, I'm willing to listen. And then the challenge is, can we listen without fixing? Yeah, that is a big challenge. You know, we have some rituals when we were done listening to someone who might have shared something really heavy. And I'm, I'm curious how you hold space, David, for so many people that have wrestled with really hard things, especially because you've also experienced really hard things. And, and bounce back or, or maintain your vitality and aliveness without absorbing necessarily all of those experiences that person has shared. How do you take care of yourself there? 
Well, I'll tell you, the, the truth is, you know, we often talk about post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about bouncing back, the reality is post-traumatic growth is actually more common. And that's what I'm finding in meaning. And so what helps me is, because I tour all over the world, I'm excited to be going to 30 cities in the U.S. and I'm going to Australia and I'm going to the U.K., And you're right, I hear everyone's grief, but you know, I recognize that's their grief. Mm -hmm. I can witness it, but it is not mine. Mm -hmm. So that, you have a certain kind of boundary then, it sounds like, in your listening. Uh, Yeah, I don't take anyone else's grief on. I can cry with them, I can sit with them, I can be compassionate with them, but, and actually me just witnessing their grief frees them and frees me. Me becoming an empath and jumping into their grief and telling them what their grief is like is actually a violation. Mm-hmm. How is it comforting you when you're not entering into or jumping into their space? You said it's comforting when you don't do that. What's, what about that's comforting to you? Well, because I sit with them and I recognize how we're all together in this human experience. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people, we come from a long line of dead people. Like literally all our ancestors died. Right. And so, you know, the truth is we're a generation that feels like maybe death is optional Mm -hmm. and death's taking us by surprise. But we all sort of get humbled into this human connection with each other. And so there's just an x-ray vision you get when you've had grief that can allow you to just sit with someone else. Mm. That's, that's comforting in the sense that it is part of this journey and it is part of healing. Mm. And for me, helping is healing. So I'm really hearing that when you listen in a particular way where you're not entering into the other person's experience, but staying in your own with them, it deepens you into your own humanity in a very sweet way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that. So how is it that you have been a party to or in alignment with or met people like Joe Biden or Mother Teresa on this journey? How did that come about? Um, You know, Mother Teresa was certainly an amazing gift to me that I uh, went and volunteered in her home in Calcutta for the dying destitute. And uh, got to meet her then. And then literally, she, when she praised my first book, The Needs of the Dying, it sort of put me on the map. And, uh, you know, like it's Mother Teresa, so of course it would. And um, uh, besides that, uh, you know, people like Joe Biden just were dealing with a loss and had read some of my stuff and felt moved to call me. And I'm always honored when people share their grief with me. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that you do the same for them that you would do for anyone, which is you hold space and you bear witness, just like you've been saying, help them reach a place of meaning. Absolutely. You know, of course, we, you know, we all talk about maybe the celebrities I work with and all that. But the truth is, I can be in my hotel just when I'm around lecturing and, you know, the maid sees a grief book and asks me what that's about. And, you know, we end up talking about her dad who died. So, you know, it's all around us. We don't Mm -hmm. often see it, but it is all around us. 
What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions you still have to combat in our culture about grief and about death? Sticking with I think the, there's, the there's a one there's a one year myth that you know after the year we're done grieving, it's mm -hmm. all over. Why a year? Yeah. Where did, who came up with that? <laughs> you know, there, there, there was a sense, there was a positive thing about that year of mourning. There was a time that we would all wear black when we were in grief. And that was a good thing because you could see literally who was in grief. Mm. The dance and when that year was up, no one ever said, now your grief is over. They just said, you don't have to wear black anymore. Mm. But the grief continued, but they did say it one year, there is a permission to live again that you now have. And so we've lost that. We don't know how to identify people in grief. We don't know how to see each other's grief. And we don't know that grief continues on and that there is a point that it becomes okay to live again. And that living again doesn't disloyal isn't disloyalty to the people who have died it mm. actually honors them yeah yeah so in a way there were some pluses and minuses right to this exactly right. sometimes it was inhibiting and other in other ways it was liberating because it allowed right. people to give you space mm. that makes sense you know <sighs> I had a few friends share some excerpts from your book on social media prior to our call. And there was, there was um, this piece around people bringing furniture out. And it, I believe it was Yeah, you wanna hear that story? I do, can you tell that for us? Sure, so the story is when I, um, when I was touring in Australia a few years ago, and I'm excited to be going back again to five cities. When I was in Australia, um, a researcher came up to me who was researching these little small villages in Australia and said how the night someone died, she was told that when someone died, everyone in their house had, in the small village had to move a piece of furniture or they had to change something in their yard or outside their house or their apartment or whatever. And the researcher said, why do you do it? And she said, because when the family wakes up the next morning, we want them to see that now that their loved one has died, everything has changed. Mm -hmm. And think about how different that is than our experience in Western society where you get up the next day and nothing's changed, but your world has been shattered. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking back to David to, I, I also lost four years ago, my best friend to cancer. And I, God, I, you know, the moments that I didn't like were the ones where I would forget that he was gone and I'd pick up the phone to call him about something because everything looked the same. Right, you know? right, of course. And I think there's something beautiful about this story because it, not that that wouldn't happen anyway, but it creates this marker for the human psyche to tether itself to in a way to say, okay, it's different. And it is going to be different. Right, exactly. Yeah, I really love that. Oh, there's just so much richness here. And I'm feeling so profoundly grateful to get to be in dialogue with you about this. Um, as you have counseled others, 
what was it like to, to be the one counseled? You know, you went through this experience when you were young. Then you became really an expert in the field. And then you have to face this exact experience yourself. Well, it was, it was brutal. And, you know, people would say, oh, my goodness, what's it like for the grief expert? And, and I yeah. would go, you know, it wasn't the grief expert whose son died. It was the father who had to bury a son. So it was, yeah. it was very obviously, it was a personal experience. It was not a sort of work experience. The other thing is, I had to experience it like everyone else, and I did everything that I've told everyone else to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll tell you, though, it humbled me that when I went to a grief group, and I went to a grief group with a cap on, and my books were on a table, like literally three feet away, mm -hmm. and like no one knew that was me. Um, it, it, it was so hard to go, and I kept going, the traffic's bad, I can't go. And then I couldn't find a parking place, I can't go. So it's sort of like now because of that, when someone walks into a grief group or walks in to see their therapist, I'm much more aware of the courage it takes and the work just to get in the room. Because I think yes. sometimes we forget how hard it is for people to show up for themselves. Because it was enormously hard for me to show up for myself. I wanted to run the other way. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I, I think that's why it's important that therapists go to therapy too. <laughs> for the same Absolutely. reason. People have said to me, they're like, well, what did you do in grief counseling? I mean, what could someone possibly say? And I was like, you know, grief needs dedicated time. Mm. It was a dedicated time to my grief. It wasn't so much what was said or what wasn't said. It was a dedicated time to my grief. Oh, that's another good one. There's a writing all these great quotes down, David. So we're coming to the end of our time, and I, I just feel so um, excited to gain these tools. And I really do want to implore for all of our Sidewalk Talk listeners, I think it's imperative that we really spend some time with David's book because we do listen to stories of grief and there's one last question before I do our closing ritual, which is we also hear, and you alluded to this earlier, about non-death non related grief. And we are hearing a ton about the environment right now. Lots of people sit down and talk about the environment or they talk about politics. And there's this grieving almost sense of futility. And I'm wondering if there are, if, is public grief a real thing? Is this legitimate thing to be grieving about? And are there differences? Public, in absolutely. Public and collective grief is very real. But one of the things we do is we see these things outside of ourselves. You know, it's this public grief and no one's doing anything about it and all that. And just like I say with personal grief, I can't ever attend to someone else's grief. You know, grief is what we do on the inside. Mourning is what we do on the outside. So I can't ever go, I'm going to help someone grieve. I can't get into their heart and soul and help them grieve. The same is true with public and collective grief. There isn't a collective to say, we've got to do something about grief, uh, whether it's about politics or the environment or whatever it may be. You have to go, what am I going to do? 
about this collective grief that's impacting me personally? What can I personally do about it? Mm-hmm. While it's collective, the action occurs individually. So I'm almost hearing that you have, to, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm hearing you say, when stuff is big going on in the collective and you're having a grief response to it, you have to give it space, just like you'd said previously, when someone dies, you have to do something for yourself internally to process and that grief. It, right. And that right? That right. And it takes us back to meaning. If I see a shooting on TV, Mm-hmm. And I'm just walking around going, these shootings are horrible and it's just so painful and there's a collective grief and I don't know what to do about these. And, you know, this is just horrible. Period. Well, it just stays horrible. If I go, how can I make meaning out of this grief? Oh my gosh, the Red Cross is showing up. Let me give money. Oh my gosh, I have an issue with the mental health of these people. How can I help with mental health issues? Is there a mental health organization I can help with? Can I care more about that person down the street that I think is odd and I don't talk to them? How can I change? How can I make meaning? You know, how do I feel about guns? Can I work with that? Can I donate money? What can we do when we see these collective things? What can you do with the environment? Mm. Can you volunteer to pick up trash? Can you give to an organization? Can you Call your congressperson. Because when we take action, that is meaning. And then we're not a victim of our collective grief. Mm. Well, you sure helped me understand. I mean, this was what, it was gun violence that had me start sidewalk talk. So it was that grief and gripping. Well, there's your meaning. There's your meaning. (laughs) You made meaning in talking and starting sidewalk talk. That is meaning making. You helped me understand it a little more right now. So I appreciate that. So there are 7,000 people who sit out on sidewalks around the world that are listening to us dialogue right now. And I wanna get out of the way here for a second as our closing ritual, David. And I would ask what wish would you offer directly to them or piece of wisdom do you wanna offer as a way to close our time together? Well, first of all, I wish I hope get to meet them somewhere maybe whether it's in a retreat or a lecture or something, and maybe on the sidewalk. And uh, my wish for them is wholeness. You know, part of my work is to help bring our whole self to our future, our whole self to our next relationships. Sometimes we bring our broken selves into the next relationship, into the next encounter into the rest of our life. So my wish for them is to find their whole selves. Beautiful. Thank you again. And how can people find you? We've talked about your book, but you I, you have a website. Do you want to share it's a little right. bit about there? It's grief.com. And as I mentioned, there's online classes on it and uh, they're nominally priced, but no one's turned away for lack of funds. I do retreats all over. Um, Some of them, I have a few coming up for breakup, divorce, and betrayal. Anyone who's dealt with those know those are horrible griefs. Mm. I also have uh, ones coming up around uh, grief and loss of a loved one dying. I have one-day seminars all around the world, and I hope that people go to grief.com, look at the events, and I would love to see them somewhere. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and for all the work that you do in the world. You are a gift, David. And this book, oh, thank you. I, I really want to pay homage to the inspiration of your son for bringing us all more meaning as we really make new meaning in our own lives with our own grief. So thank you to him too. Oh, thank you. Yeah. All right. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of